0: Hello, I'm Ed Middleband, and when I'm not fighting for a soft Brexit, I like to listen to Take (laughs) Orally.
1: Thank you for downloading, and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing paediatric DKA. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary, All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello and welcome to Take Oraly, the podcast for people who haven't had enough of experts yet. Uh, My name is Jamie, I'm still one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine and uh, we have a few words from uh, the former leader of the opposition, Mr Ed Miliband. Hello Mr Miliband. Jamie, I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be
0: here with such a stalwart of the emergency medicine podcast world. Yours must be, what, within the top 50 of emergency medicine podcasts. Is that true? Uh,
1: Top 51 I think but <laughs> no listeners, that's not Mr Miliband it's uh, Steve Tilson hello Steve hello Jamie reformed teaching fellow
0: yes I'm now back in clinical medicine and loving it I'm a a registrar again now it's exciting times
1: and speaking of registrars we have another one good morning Colin hi there guys it's Colin Gilhooly here one of the peds emergency consultants here at Queen's you're consultant
2: now. Oh no. That's <laughs> so about to congratulate you then, mate. I'm really sorry. Well, I'm really sorry, Colin. No, not at all. I don't know where that came from. Delusions of adequacy. Not just grandeur. And have
1: you ever been a, a teaching fellow, Colin? Or are you I haven't. I've no. never had
2: such the, such a joyous job as such.
1: Oh dear. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing when diabetes goes as bad otherwise known as uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, Mm -hmm. Uh, some facts and figures, completely off the top of my head, in no way read off the screen in front of me, Um, did you know, gentlemen, that 10% of the total NHS budget is spent on diabetes care? Gasp. I know. And did you know that 80% of those costs are from potentially avoidable complications of diabetes? I didn't, no. no. That's uh, good information. And that each episode of DKA costs an average of £900. And there are mm. approximately 6,000 episodes of DKA each year in the UK. So, chaps, what is DKA? I
0: always quite like DKA as a thing to teach because uh, it's it's there in the name, isn't it? D, you've got to have the diabetes, so that's the sugars. Um, I think that the guidelines say above 11, it's usually a lot higher than that. So, yeah, mm. yeah capillary glucose, formerly known as BM. Do you know what BM stands for, Jamie?
1: I don't. What does BM stand for?
0: <laughs> See, I should know that. I should have looked this up before, but it's it's actually the name of the company that made the original glucose sticks. I think it's Correct. a and Myra or something yeah, like something something long which and German. we germ. no longer
1: use. Oh. Yeah. So it's, a, so it's like Pritt stick or yeah, yeah. sellotape. Yeah, exactly. Ah. <coughs> there you go. Um, so we should actually be saying generic blood <coughs> glucose yeah. Chest, yeah. chesting yeah. equipment. Capillary glucose, I think, is a, a decent one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
0: Um, So yeah, capillary glucose above 11, and the K, ketones, um, that's probably the main reason they're sick is that they've got ketones uh, which we can detect again from from capillary blood, uh, nice and simple, and that's usually above 3 millimoles per litre, or if uh, if we've not got any ways of measuring ketones, we can also um, measure it in the urine with a urine dipstick, and then they usually like there to be at least two pluses of ketones in the urine. And then finally, acidosis, Uh, so we're expecting a pH of less than 7.3.
1: D-K-A a. So it's a, a triad, which uh, I like to uh, force through my students by showing them a picture of three columns and going, it's a triad. You need your three columns, otherwise it's not D-K-A. Awesome. So we're going to do a couple of podcasts. This first one, we're going to look at um, why people with uh, diabetes get D-K-A, and then we're going to look primarily at young people coming in with D-K-A. And then the second one, we'll look at adults and and have a bit of a chat as well about uh, any issues that come with DKA management. (coughs) So, Colin, why do people get DKA? So they get DKA, uh, firstly and primarily
2: in diabetes, because there's a relative insulin deficiency. Um, So in type 1 diabetics, it's the um, fact that the pancreas uh, has been attacked, and those... uh, beta cells within the pancreas have been uh, destroyed by an autoimmune process which leads to a lack of insulin which means glucose is unable to be taken up into cells and therefore glucose can no longer be used as a primary source of fuel within the body. That leads to ketosis in order to create some energy which can be used which is a slightly uh, less efficient process uh, and has lots of problems in terms of producing ketones which are acidotic in nature as well as that often when this happens when children are unwell or adults are unwell and you've got a a stress response that happens alongside it and as we know when you have a stress response from the body that actually creates uh, a ketotic picture in itself as the body attempts to utilize more resources to produce energy and when you start to feel unwell or you are unwell you then fast if you're having a prolonged period of fasting your body goes into a ketotic state and then you add all those three up and add in dehydration all at the same time and then you have an acidotic picture with marked ketone production uh, which the body is not able to respond to as well because renal perfusion is reduced. When renal perfusion is reduced, your body gets is unable to remove the glucose from the system, it's unable to re- remove hydrogen ions from the system and so that acidosis continues to worsen
1: everything goes wrong. <laughs> everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. Okay, and um, <clears throat> so I suppose in the world of, of paediatrics, you may see DKA maybe the first presentation of unknown diabetes. Correct. So I think uh, it's uh, an unusual presentation. It's rare children
2: who present with a history of vomiting and lethargy, most likely to have a viral illness, whether that be a gastroenteritis or another form of illness. And so... <laughs> It's often not considered uh, in children at the first port of call. And so I would say um, that any child that presents with persistent vomiting um, should have a blood sugar done because it's a reasonably cheap, easy to do uh, test. Uh, it can be done at the bedside with an immediate result and it can tell you two things. One, if the child's got a low blood sugar because they've uh, been vomiting and not eating. Uh, but secondly, for this podcast, whether they've got a very high sugar and then you've got uh, a potential... Diagnosis that can be
1: investigated to make sure you don't miss it. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> I don't know which university you got guys went to. I went to University of Nottingham, a fine university. Um, and we were taught the five eyes that cause DKA. Have you, were you taught something similar or a different thing? You're looking at me. I wasn't so or? much
0: taught at medical school. <laughs> 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 I, you arrived yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're probably too easily traceable, are I'm, I'm only two Tilson's on the GMC register, and you can see straight away which university <laughs> I went to. So, no, my university was Cardiff, and it was wonderful, and I was taught brilliantly. Thank you. Thank okay. you, team, at Cardiff University.
2: Which university did you go to? Leicester, just down the road. Uh, <clears throat> oh, I was not taught about
1: the five eyes. I'm intrigued to hear about them.
0: I'm guessing one is infection. I'll see it's always infection, if See if we can, if if we can get there. Uh,
1: so, the, the first eye is for insulin. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So, I, you've not got enough. You're not taking enough. Okay, Either deliberately, so there is a significant proportion of people um, with diabetes who also have eating disorders and if you don't take your insulin, you can help Usually. weight loss Yeah. because like, like you said, you become ketotic, you burn fat um, or you're not known to have diabetes, you're not taking enough insulin or you've been unwell, for whatever reason, you're not taking enough So, or you just don't want to take your insulin, which also does happen, so one is, is insulin. Uh, the second eye is like Steve said uh, infection yes it's yes. 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 always infection I so, like it. um, which I think can be difficult can't it because you'll have a you'll look unwell you'll have a raised white cell count as part of your DKA process so it can be a bit difficult to find is there an infection there yeah I agree
2: yeah it's uh, a challenging one isn't it mm. um, but I guess it, if you're looking for it that's the time that you find it that's very deep <laughs>
0: well, you know. i think one of the ones i find quite hard is quite a lot of people with dka end up with abdominal pain as part of the condition right. uh, and so yeah. that's always quite a difficult one to say is this abdominal pain because they've got a gastroenteritis so that's the infection or or probably less so in peds. but certainly in adults we're often mm. looking for for a sort of an intra an a, a more sinister intra-abdominal cause and mm. so so it, it you i think you have to I, n- I never know what they mean by a high index of suspicion, but I suppose it's kind of like say, well, they've got a bit of abdominal pain, probably the DKA. But as I can, I'm going to be treating this person for a long time, so I'm going to mm. keep reassessing that and thinking yeah. in my mind,
1: could it be something else? Mm. Just got to keep your eyes open. Absolutely, and you have preempted the third eye, seeing intra-abdominal. So, yeah. <coughs> do not forget your your complication of chronic pancreatitis. You, you know you kill off your beta cells you will no longer make insulin uh, so people with chronic pancreatitis chronic cholecystitis can become diabetic and as a result get decay so i've got 40% now so i'm almost at the pass mark
0: <laughs> <laughs> the fourth eye is ischemia i was going to say infarction it's oh, infarction is ischemia so it's okay. yeah so, so i get 10% for that so i'm up to 50, are, so yeah, 50 so, you're, I, so yeah I you're, you're solid through path. yes well done. Go yeah. <laughs> Um, it's actually called Cardiff University. I should know as soon as I went. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the the fifth eye, do you think? Doctors do it to patients. Iatrogenic. <laughs> yeah, so, so your long-term glucose, sterile corticosteroids and things, um, mm. you can... Have okay. you ever
0: seen a person with a dK just from having taken too many steroids? No,
1: but it's listed, so it therefore I, I'm passing it out to them. Have you? No, I've never. No. I have seen someone who
0: came... I, I've seen someone... It was when I was on GP, and uh, it was this woman who came by and said, "I've, I've been diagnosed with diabetes, but since I've stopped taking these steroids, my sugars have been completely normal, and... Yeah, I remember the GP saying, well, diabetes is a progressive illness, particularly type 2, which they thought she had, so there's no way you'd be getting better, so I think we can put that down just to the steroids. So.
1: Mm, okay. I think you mentioned type 2 diabetes there, Stephen. Oh, I it? did. Sorry, we're on kids. Sorry. So, well, well, um, I think we've... you um, should point at this point that people with type 2 diabetes can still get DK. I think it's very rare, but it's not a thing that's purely just for type Yeah, one.
0: so... Obviously, um, ketosis as a process happens because of insulin deficiency, and we know that people with type 2 diabetes aren't insulin deficient. In fact, if anything, they've got more insulin, their problem is insulin resistance, so Mm. they've got plenty of insulin going around, uh, but their body's just not reacting to it appropriately. as this carries on, and your sort of your your poor old beta cells end up having to produce more and more insulin to try and you know provoke the body into response uh, to glucose, eventually they can burn out. So I think as part of the the, the course of the disease, a lot of people well not a lot certainly a number of people with type two diabetes will end up insulin deficient mm. as well as insulin resistant, and so those people are then prone to getting DK
2: as well.
1: Type two diabetes in young people, Colin. So I think
2: this is something that's becoming increasingly. Common over the last probably, uh, decade or so, we've been seeing a lot of children who are, frankly, incredibly obese. And in the last eighteen months, I've seen two, two adolescents who presented with a much more um, honk type picture. Uh, so hypoglycemic. Was it? I, I don't see it very non-hyperglycemic, it was osmotic non-, non. What's it now called? Sorry.
0: So yes, hyperglycemic hyperosmotic state (HHS). HHS, man. HHS man. Apologies for my. Uh, I think I think they didn't like defining it by what it isn't. Yeah. This <laughs> uh, <which> is <laughs> it's what was yeah.
2: So we've seen two children uh, on the children's intensive care unit in the last eighteen months who have presented with a kind of very mixed picture of DKA slash HHS, uh, mm. which presents its challenges um, because paediatricians aren't used to seeing it, so they automatically treat these children like DKA, but actually they're somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so, something that I'm sure we'll come on to later, fluid management in these children is mm. is a little bit more complex.
1: Mm, mm. And uh, <coughs> I think just as a, my sorry about this, my voice is broken today. Um, HHS, different to DKA, the, the blood sugar tends to be a lot higher. Um, I mean, in the 50s I've seen it before, and you can't get anything on the generic capillary blood testing kit. Um, but on the uh, VBG, it's up there in 50. Mm. Ketones think... tend to be a lot lower because it's non-ketotic. Yeah. Uh, and obviously then you're into worrying about your serum osmolarity, which is always a, a fun thing to work out in the ED department. I think DK
0: is quite a showy... Illness, you know, people look mm. quite unwell. There, they've got the smell breathing, the breathing because they're really fast because they're acidotic, rather than because there's anything wrong with their lungs. Sorry mm. if I'm preempting another question of yours there, no, Jamie. Indeed. Sorry. Um, whereas HHS, I think people forget how. Um, you know don't think they think oh it's just hhs it's not not as exciting as dka it's not got uh, such a nice sort of protocolized treatment it's not such a clear guideline and i think um we forget that they're actually sicker and i think and um i don't have the figures in front of me but hhs does have a higher mortality than Mm. dka Mm. um and of course because of the ketones and because of making you acidotic and all the other beautiful pathology as recited by colin earlier much better than i could have done um the, that's why he's a <laughs> consultant <an> <laughs> that's why he's here isn't it let's be, be fair <laughs> because the ketones make you acidotic people with dka feel much more unwell much quicker whereas the people with hhs it tends to be that they're just the disease has progressed that much further before they're unwell so that's why the sugars do tend to be up there i think i think i've, I've I should remember this, but I'd, I've definitely seen one over a hundred uh, glucose, blood glucose. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that was
1: a particularly
0: bad one, but often they can be above 50, like mm. you're saying.
1: And uh, in HHS, perfusion seems to be more, m- well, biochemically, there's much more evidence of poor perfusion, like high lactate, basically, whereas in DK, I've seen you know, pHs of 6.8, 6.7, and very slightly raised lactate. I mean, it's not the lactate that's causing the, the acidosis, whereas in HHS, the lactate is high. Mm. So we've had some spoilers already from, from Stephen there. Thank you, Stephen, mentioning Sorry. some interesting names. So Colin, um, your young person coming in in DKA. Yeah. How are they going to look? Um, so uh, they're going to look unwell. And I
2: know that sounds like an obvious thing to say to start with, but I think it's important uh, to point out that looking at these children, you can tell that there's something wrong before you see them. Um, they're going to look dehydrated, sunken eyes, pale skin, maybe cold peripheries. Um, and uh, they're likely to be tachycardic, secondly to the dehydration. If they are hypertensive, then you should be incredibly worried because children who are hypertensive are peri-arrest, um, but usually just tachycardic. And then you should hopefully be able to gleam a few bits of important history early on. So, polyurea, polydipsia. Um, been going on for a little while, maybe a week or two weeks. Might well be a family history of type one diabetes, and then you should very quickly be able to get a blood gas, uh, a blood gas, or even just a generic blood sugar, uh, which will able to show you that they've got a raised glucose. And if you have got the gas, they'll very quickly tell you that they're acidotic. Um, and so I think early recognition, even if it is just a blood sugar, is important because it will
1: guide you to the right diagnosis early on. Mm. And that polydipsy thing is a, is a real thing. I mean, I, um, when I was at school, a um, bloke in my year whose little sister had, had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and she, she first presented as DKA, he thought he'd reached the age of 16 and he was fine. And then we noticed that our, le- our nearly said lectures, our lessons were about 45 minutes and he had a litre bottle of water and he was knocking it back. And going for refills and he was like I'm really thirsty and a, a week later he was there injecting himself yes I've been diagnosed as having diabetes yeah and I think that's a, it
2: is a real thing it's obvious uh, parents will have noticed a change one of the important ones if they're not sure is to ask them whether the child wakes up in the night for a drink um, because whilst that's not unheard of it is unusual and it is uncommon especially if it's only happened
1: in the preceding few weeks or perhaps a month or so. Um, Stephen, you mentioned Kusmael breathing. The floor is yours. What is it? Uh,
0: Kusmael breathing, I imagine, was described by a Dr. Kusmael. Again, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is pure speculation. Uh, Kusmael breathing um, is. Uh, a high respiratory rate that's due to uh, a metabolic acidosis and um, so if we're looking at our, our ABG we see um the pH is low hence the acidosis and then obviously we're ne- next looking at to see if does this match with the carbon dioxide so is it respiratory acidosis and you'll find that obviously carbon dioxide is, a, is an ac- acidic gas so therefore if there's if it's high that would explain the low pH but actually in DK, we'll see that the, the PCO2 is low uh, that's because they've got Another cause of acidosis, ketones uh, in this case, and also um, the problems with uh, renal perfusion that we mentioned earlier. Uh, and so as a result, th- the body can't do anything about that, but it does want its pH as close to normal, so it, it goes the extra mile to try and blow off a bit of extra carbon dioxide and try and get that pH as, as close to
1: um, as close to physiological as possible, and so that's a breathing. And it is dramatic, isn't it? I think I've only seen it a few times, but it is, and there's some lovely videos on, on YouTube. Um, other video mm. websites are probably available, but YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, showing it and uh, I mean I, it's been described as being oxygen hungry it's literally like just as much as you can get in and it is a real hyperventilation going on as a response ok um, so what's your approach then going to be for our young person you, you, you're suspicious of DKA you, you've got your initial tests to confirm So what are you going to do now Um, So, if you can, it might seem like an odd thing for me to say,
2: certainly in children, is weigh the child and that gives you two things. If there's been weighed recently beforehand, gives you an idea of how dehydrated they are, but it also guides your resuscitation if you can weigh them in 12, 24 hours time to see how much fluid you've actually got into them. After that, um, if they are extremely unwell, manage them as APLS, high flow oxygen. Okay, their oxygen saturations may well be fine, but that is the APLS guideline, and you'll actually find it in most uh, guidelines within the hospital uh, where you work. It's certainly in our DKA guideline. After that, make make sure you have at least one good IV access. Okay, take bloods. Okay, for type one diabetes, we have very set antibodies that we like to take. While these are not imperative to be taken at this point, if you are able to get enough blood. Uh, and do a glucose, lab glucose, a HbA1c, the eusinase, a full blood count, and amylase uh, or lipase, depending on what you trust you work in, Um, and try and get blood or urine ketones as well. Uh, All of these things are done purely to be able to guide your management as you're getting better, and the specific tests for antibodies um, will vary perhaps from trust to trust, but here we certainly do thyroid antibodies, celiac antibodies, uh, and islet cell antibodies. Uh, as early as we can uh, to give us some information as to what might be causing it and to guide whether the child's going to have other conditions
1: So it's like an autoimmune screen an autoimmune picture. panel
2: because that's what we know is causing uh, the vast majority of these uh, type 1 diabetes
0: it's interesting you do test those i didn't i don't think i realized that i thought you'd just assume in a in a ch- no. child unless they're particularly obese that um, no, no. it was type 1 but you do actually test to see we test for
2: them all and there's there's two reasons one is um Depending on the antibody you've got, might affect um, your disease, mm-hmm. and two, it might guide you to the fact that they're going to have auto other autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, um, other than that as well, there's I think mean, different genetic inheritance patterns between them all. Mm-hmm. So if they do have other children, um, or siblings, and um, then it's worth knowing about them because then you can kind of stratify how how at risk they're going to be. So we've talked about all the things you can do to get access there
1: and to, to do your testing but we haven't talked really much about management,
2: have we, I don't
1: think? No, not yet. And um, in front, I have in front of me, do you have the same thing? I have the British Society of Paediatric Endocrinologists yep. guidelines in front of me. So the BSPED
2: guidelines, which are available at BSPED.org.uk, that's the British Society of Endocrinology and Diabetology. They have a full guideline and as well as the guideline is a PDF on their website, which allows you to put in the patient's weight and name, uh, percentage dehydration you clinically feel they have, and it will then calculate all their fluid resuscitation and insulin infusion rates for you. So if you're not sure how to do them, that will do it for you. What was that website
1: again? BSped, so b-s-p-e-d dot org dot uk. And I believe our guidelines here at NUH links basically to them
2: it links to them yeah. uh, there is a link within the guideline our guidelines in terms of dehydration uh, within NUH are actually we only allow for 8% dehydration as a maximum the B-SPEC guidelines allow for 10% mm. yeah, it's crazy <laughs> it is it's our position here that uh, in DKA um, children are thought to be more dehydrated than they actually are um, so they look incredibly unwell because they're acidotic they are dehydrated but they're also acidotic Uh, which changes the way your peripheral perfusion looks. And so there's a a tendency to give them too much fluid, and I'm sure we'll come on to fluid resuscitation, especially in pediatric patients, and why we think uh, we have to be incredibly careful with it. But the guideline is essentially start 0.9% saline with no glucose in it for one hour, and then start an insulin infusion at 0.1 units per kilo um, per hour, one hour after starting the IV fluids
1: you rehydrate them before you start? Give
2: them a little bit of fluid to see how they're getting on. Um, And then people might ask, why not a bolus? Uh, The only reason to give a bolus in DK is if the patient is in shock. Mm. And that doesn't mean they look a bit cold periphery and they're a bit tachycardic. That means they're in shock, so they're hypertensive and they are about to arrest.
1: How hypotensive would you Well, that would
2: depend on the age of the child. uh, And I would refer to APLS uh, blood pressure controls, depending on age for that. I won't go through them now because... Uh, it would take a little
1: bit too much work of my memory to work them all out. And according to here, you should uh, only give a, a maximum bolus of 10 mils per kilogram normal saline and not give any more without discussing with a senior. So I think And it I says d- consultant.
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it should be a consultant, shouldn't it, Nicole? Yeah, <laughs> It should be a consultant.
1: And
2: realistically, I think it needs to be a paediatric intensive care consultant because if you're starting to think about giving more fluids... As a bolus than that, then you must be very worried about this child's circulation. Mm. So the only place they should be going is to a paediatric HD or intensive care setting. Mm. Um, So if that's how concerned you are, then they need to be reviewed by the paediatric intensive care
1: team. Awesome. And so um, looking at the uh, guidelines here in front of me in paper form, Mm -hmm. um, it's talking then, um, as I was talking about fluids, about the deficit the child has. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you said, we can estimating dehydration is quite clinically difficult. Yes. And so it, it recommends here going off the patient's pH. And so they've used five
2: percent if it's above seven point one and ten percent if it's below that. Mm. So um I think that's not an unreasonable thing to do. Certainly it's not quite uh, what we do within NUH. You're not going not gonna to insult Beast there on this, no, on this they're, I mean, <laughs> They are clearly the absolute experts on this, aren't they? And, and they've but... got a good
0: acronym, so that's always, that's always
1: a good thing. <laughs> um, so I feel like as... I'm a bit of a heckler on this particular podcast. But so. I,
0: I think that, as I
2: say, within NUH we only go to 8%, so we go to uh, mild at 3%, moderate at 5%, uh, and severe at 8%, and then after that comes shock, where you're allowed to give you 10 kilo bolus. Okay. Um, so mild would be uh, just clinically detectable, so maybe just a tachycardia in an otherwise reasonably well child. Moderate, they'd be tachycardic with uh, dry mucous membranes, reduced skin turgor, uh, and then moving on to severe, which is 8%. Uh, they would have sunken eyes, poor capillary refill, perhaps cold peripheries, again, with that tachycardia ongoing. But blood pressure is still all right? Blood pressure is still all right. So if the blood pressure is
1: affected, they are in shock. Mm. Okay. So, I hope here again B-Sped is, this, uh, is uh, causing an argument with Colin. Um. Absolutely is not. <laughs> B-Sped is the national guideline
2: for the whole of the UK. Um, whether as this is just our trust guideline. So just being aware, if you're listening to this and you work in NUH, this is our guideline. Make sure you're
1: familiar with Whatever guideline is in place in your trust. So BSped here talking about the volume of fluid to give is requirement is your deficit plus your maintenance. Correct. Okay, and how are you
2: going to replace that? So um, our guideline says replace over forty-eight hours. So does BSped. Excellent. So I think all of this is telling you it's saying only give a bolus if they're in shock and then replace the fluid over two days, whatever their deficit is, not one day, we're saying give them fluids back slowly. And the reason for that is this process did not happen quickly, it happened slowly. It's been a gradual process, and so we want to gradually rehydrate the child back to their normal state.
1: Mm. And how do we calculate maintenance?
2: So maintenance fluids, um, so the generic formula for calculating maintenance fluids in any child is 100 mils per kilo for the first 10 kilos, 50 mils per kilo for the second 10 kilos, and then 20 mils per kilo for every fluid after that. In 24 hours? In 24 hours. Mm. Okay, so if they weigh more than 20 kilos, then 20 kilos maintenance is 100 times 10, 50 times 10, which is one and a half liters. Okay, or 1500 mils, depending on how you like to know it. And then 20 mils per kilo for every Kilo after that. However, again, not in Beast sped I'm sure Beast sped said something similar to that. Actually, um, our lovely Trust uh, has weights, weight bands, and just tells you how much mils per kilo to give for a weight band. So it's I think naught to thirteen kilos is sixty mils per kilo per twenty four hours. Thirteen to twenty drops down to sorry naught to thirteen is eighty mils per kilo. 13 to 20 is 65 mils per kilo. And there's weight brackets as it goes up and up. So if, once you get to 60 kilos, uh, you have 35 mils per kilo per 24 hours. If you have 80 kilos, you've got HHS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, hopefully.
1: But so the B-Spec Island has a nice little box. Um, and they talk about if you... If your child weighs less than 10 kilos, give 2 mils per kilo per hour. That's 48 mils per kilo per 24 hours. Mm. Okay. Uh, If you weigh between 10 and 40, it's a mil per kilogram per hour. Okay. And if you weigh more than 40, it's fixed at 40 mils per hour. And that is maintenance. Maintenance, yes.
2: Yes. Okay. So I think what you've heard here is that there are differences between different guidelines and like I said before it's worth knowing what your trust guidelines say and it's worth knowing how to do these calculations rather than finding out when you've got this chart in front of you so have a look at your guidelines and be familiar with doing this maths Hmm. or math depending on maths don't go down that road
1: (laughs) don't Americanize take orally (laughs) we are British and proud
0: do you have any listeners in America, Jamie, do you know? Uh,
1: I don't think so, no. We, we have some in Leicester. Hello, Leicester. Hi, Leicester. <laughs> Colin's neck of the woods. What a place that is. <laughs> go the Foxes. <laughs> and the um, Tigers. Go Man United. Um, controversial. Yeah, you'll edit that out. I'll edit that I'll You, <laughs> <that bit out. laughs> you do on the hate mail, do you? No. Um, so, you, you calculate your requirements, so you look at the deficit, so you'll um, want to see how much that your patient needs over the 48 hour period. Yeah. So, the B Spay guy, they've got a couple of examples up here. Um, so, one is um, a 20 kilo, six year old boy with a um, 5% fluid deficit. So, they've worked out 5% times their weight, divide that over 48 hours, and then you add their maintenance to make up a yeah, does so that about right to you? So it does, but just
2: in that, uh, Jamie, um, so to work out the deficit, if you say it's 5%, mm-hmm. so it's the weight of the child, so 20 kilos, the dehydration of the child, so five, 5%, mm-hmm. uh, times by 10, okay? And that will give you the exact number of mils that you need to replace. So that is the deficit to be replaced over two days, and then you add that to their maintenance. For two days, and then you divide it by two to work out what they need for 24 hours.
1: Which comes out to 41 mils per hour. Per hour. Over 24 hour period. You've also got to remember that if you've given them a bolus... You have to take it off. We need to talk about um, changing fluids. So,
2: paediatric fluids change depending on what the blood sugar does. Okay. Yeah. So, you need to add in glucose when the glucose starts to fall. You don't stop the insulin. So you guys might use a sliding scale in adults. No. Excellent. So no, we haven't used a sliding scale ever since I qualified.
0: The adults are slowly catching up with the P. Yeah. So It used to be that our guidelines were very much a sliding scale and fluid, 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 as much fluid as sticks. Um, whereas I think we've started to realise that actually there's nothing magical that happens on your 16th birthday. And yeah. we should probably,
2: uh, we're a lot more conservative with fluid and uh, fixed rate insulin. Basically. Yeah. So I think with the insulin, the whole point is that these children, haven't got insulin or adults have no insulin, so you have to give it and it has to continuously be given. Otherwise, as soon as you stop it, they go back into ketosis and then they become acidotic again. So, you need to stop that process. So, the insulin needs to be continuous throughout all this. There's very few reasons to stop the insulin infusion, there's very few reasons to reduce the rate of the insulin infusion. You might have to if the glucose is falling, despite adding glucose to your fluids. Mm -hmm. So Jamie, I was very clear that it was 0.9% saline with no glucose that you started these children on. Um, But that obviously may change over the longer period of resuscitation. Now for most of these patients they'll have left the emergency department at this point uh, and will have gone to a a paediatric ward that looks after... DKA on a regular basis so in in this hospital we have one designated unit for them all to go to and so within that when they're up there they'll be having regular uh, blood tests so so they'll be having their glucose done I think it's every half an hour uh, Mm. for the first two hours Uh, then hourly then two hourly and within that period, if the glucose starts to, to fall dramatically, there's a set protocol for introducing 0.9% saline with 5% glucose or 0.9% saline with 10% glucose as the sugar changes and falls. There are set cutoffs and set rates of decrease that trigger that. But if they're triggered, then it's important that they're going to have to be changed. And the other thing we didn't mention about fluids was potassium. Mm. So we all know that insulin... Forces potassium into cells. That's why we give it in hyperkalemia. Indeed, exactly. So we're about and
1: dextrose, not just insulin. Cells.
2: So we're about to give these children insulin, so their potassium's going to move intracellularly. So in order to make sure that it doesn't drop, all these children are likely to need potassium in their bags. Usually, at the start, we'd start it in uh, in all the bags, uh, so 0.9% saline with 20 to 40 millimoles per kilo. 20 millimoles per litre, sorry. Um, and then and then adjust that depending on the blood results. Uh, so at two hours, they will have their use and E checked again. Uh, and then adjust fluid management
1: as necessary. Mm. You can use a, a blood gas to check for potassium as well or would you rather a formal U and E?
2: Um, so more than happy for them to have a blood gas, but I think they need a formal U and E as well. Uh, and I think it depends on the trust where you work as to whether um, it's felt that gases are acceptable in terms of um being reliable for their for their levels of electrolytes (coughs) Uh, they're certainly good as a guide there's no doubt about that um Mm.
1: um, but we would want lab and ease at two hours Mm. i i I love a gas when it comes to to dka because you get your ph you get your glucose you can get your potassium somebody just needs to invent one that also has ketones on it yeah um you know so it's, it's so irritating, you have
0: to look in two
1: different places, Jamie. I know. What, what, a, what a challenge you I have. That's uh, awful. Uh,
0: work. I uh, think that the, 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 the caveat with the gas potassium is that you
1: can't be sure, uh, you can't know the levels of hemolysis, which they can tell you in the Indeed, map. indeed. Uh, very good point. And um, if we're sticking our kin, giving them extra potassium, I'm assuming there's a level of monitoring needed there.
2: Yeah, so absolutely. Um, so, the as I said, the user needs need to be checked. Two hours post starting the IV fluids, and then four hourly after that, and then depending on the level of your plasma potassium, you can guide your um, the amount of potassium needed in your IV fluids. So if it's under two point five, then you need to give them lots of potassium. Hopefully, you can get forty to sixty. Uh, millimoles of potassium in a 500ml bag. Obviously, if it's 16, most places like the patient to be on HDU. Um, if it's 2.5 to 5, then 20 millimoles in a 500ml bag. If it's 5 to 6, 10 millimoles in a 500ml bag. And if potassium's over six, then they don't have any potassium in their bag.
1: Mm. And I suppose we've talked about the fluids. The elephant in the room, the big thing that we worry about, which is why we are so careful with our fluids. Let's speak its name. Cerebral edema. (gasps) Yeah. Let's discuss it. Okay. What? Uh, We don't know why this happens, do we? I mean, I've read several papers and none of them seem to agree. I don't know. I mean, we we are learned men around this table. Stephen, have you found any sort of agreement on it or call it any agreement? I agreement about what well, sorry the why breakup, but, uh, we push our children into cerebral edema what actually is the reason why it happens
0: as opposed to why uh, adults don't get it or absolutely yeah i mean i think i think one of the reasons in in it's less of a feature in adults is because um you, just as you get older your brain starts factory and there's a bit more room in your uh in your skull for your your mm-hmm. brain to to shift i think we, we talked uh, colin mentioned earlier about how um The deficit is something that's come on over days. Um, So these people have been dehydrated over probably sort of three or four days. Um, Glucose, you know, if you've got high glucose, the only other way of getting rid of it other than putting it into your cells with insulin is to it out. And it takes an awful lot of water with it. So you do end up very dehydrated. So if you can imagine that sort of taken three or four days to develop and Mm -hmm. you suddenly correct that within six hours two-thirds of the the water in your body is inside your cells uh, and you're suddenly pushing it all back into and even then like only a ninth is inside your vascular space so you suddenly push that into your intervascular space that's suddenly a lot more dilute than what's left in your cells the fluid shifts are massive um, and that's I think why um, you end up with various tissues becoming edematous and they're probably the most dangerous one to become a is is your brain mm. um, and that can cause uh, a lot of bad things to use the technical medical term
2: <laughs> yeah i think i think that's right i think um it's the fast return of fluids into the body um every every cell in your body has attempted to adjust for the level of dehydration has it's pushed itself probably to its limit uh, and you are now asking it to undo itself very fast and it the cells, on a cellular level I just don't think they can cope the mm. exact mechanisms behind it I don't think we truly understand um, but I think from the point of view of how I work when a, d- when a child with DKA comes in I assume that all of them have a degree of cerebral edema, and it's my job not to make them
1: worse when they get to me
2: mm. um, and so I'm very very cautious with my fluids
1: mm. and um, there's some evidence that early insulin yeah can help push into cerebral edema as well yeah. is that right
2: yeah so if you if you give insulin within the first hour so that's why we don't give it for the first hour of iv fluid resuscitation um it appears that that first hour giving insulin increases your risk of cerebral edema and again the exact reasons for this i don't think are well understood mm-hmm. uh, maybe it is to do with the fact that insulin is then going to push glucose and potassium into those cells quite early on and quite quickly uh, and if Glucose moves. It's an osmotic particle, it's going to pull water with it, and then you're going to get a degree of intracellular swelling, um, and so just being a bit more cautious with that appears mm. uh, appears to, to reduce
1: the incidence. Mm. Um, so I suppose it's very important then to be checking your, your child's GCS during this.
2: Absolutely. So some of these children will come in with a, a reduced GCS, some of them will not, but I think you have to take any change, any reduction in GCS um, incredibly seriously. Mm. Uh, they might have a degree of confusion, restlessness, irritability, headaches, uh, changes in their pupils, especially if they're small. Um, and obviously, uh, if their blood pressures does start to climb and the heart rate does start to drop, that's obviously a very late sign, um, of raised intracranial pressure. Um, but you need to be watching out for all of these. And that's why close monitoring and following your guideline carefully is
1: important shout out to the Cushing's reflex there Cushing's reflex <laughs> just to prove I also did go to medical school
0: other reflexes are available <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so yeah so I mean this is um, this was a, something that was brought up at, at the Archem case study day earlier this year I went to in London um, and um, I had a poster there, it was, it was very nice congratulations, uh, but the, thank you uh, but there was a, a oral presentation and it was um, an ED registrar Oh uh, was um, presenting a case of an 18-year-old who uh, I think was a student, came in, known diabetic, came in in DKA, um, and was treated as an adult, which we'll talk about in the following podcast, but spoiler alert, it involves a lot more fluid. Um, and his GCS started dropping, and this doctor was mm-hmm, scratched his chin and said, well... It could it be the infection that's going on? I thought I heard some crackles. Let's give some antibiotics. No, it's still dropping. Okay. Um, I'm a bit stumped now. And it was a nurse who'd done a secondment in PEDS, went by and went, have you thought about cerebral edema? Scanned the, the young chap's head, and all of his sulci were gone, with big swollen brain pressing up against the skull. And he, the, the patient went to, uh, to ITU. Um... Which I think illustrates a very important point. I think you'd already mentioned it, you know, just because you've turned a certain arbitrary point in time, when does a person stop becoming a young person and start being an adult? Physiologically?
2: Physiologically, it's a challenging one. So I think what we've come back to is there that at the age of 17, 18, you haven't had any cerebral atrophy. There is a very limited space uh, in your school. And so you are much more likely to be of a child's disposition than an adult and uh, I would certainly say that many pediatric endocrinologists would say that these children should be looked after on the pediatric protocol at least until the age of 20 and some would say much higher than that but mm-hmm. I am perhaps putting words into their mouth but I think we need to be clear that a teenager with type 1 diabetes um, you are at risk of cerebral edema. Mm.
1: I
0: remember having a, a 16 year old Um, it was one of the it wasn't this hospital, and um, so I'm not uh, knocking any age. But there was a lot of disagreement over whether the cutoff was sixteen or leaving full time education, and he fell between the two. So there was a big kind of tussle of, of war between the the medics uh, adult I T U and the the children's teams. Which you know the pediatric team in the end actually did come and step in and uh, and help us out with them, even though he they he probably wasn't actually their responsibility anymore. Anyway, I I've been. Sort of treating him as per the guideline, which was a litre of fluid in the first hour, um, and I do remember the paediatric yeah the paediatric reg had a similar a similar Colin look on is the face. Actually, past.
1: having breathing right now. <laughs>
0: I wouldn't be telling this story if he hadn't been fine. Colin. Um, and I do just remember her going, "Whoa, there!" You know, like. 48 hours definitely so um it's interesting and you know our our new guideline in ours is actually a lot more conservative and i remember the same case the itu consultant ring me up and saying uh, i think a couple of hours later and saying oh you know just checking out did, did someone take that that case okay well uh you know people with dk are incredibly dehydrated so just give them as much fluid as you possibly take it's like it's funny how much uh, controversy there is still, mm. around, still around that kind of area uh
1: and the patient in the story i told as well um was reported made a full recovery as well, but it was a very you know it was a very uh, interesting case. Um, I th- it's fair to say then this is an area that will be developed in the future. I believe that that is an area that uh, they say that a certain proportion of what you learn in med school is obsolete within five years. I think it's probably an area that will be mm-hmm. continuously looked at. I'm also having trouble with cerebral atrophy at the moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> it comes to us all, Stephen. It comes to us all. Um, excellent. Um, so that's why in our guidelines as well as well as all the fluid options it it mentions mannitol at the bottom it
2: does um so in our emergency department we have mannitol the other option is obviously hypertonic saline there is no evidence that one is better than the other at at reducing intracranial hypertension so use whichever one your trust uh, recommends or whichever one you're familiar with um but it can be used the important thing to remember is that all it is doing is buying you a bit of time so it causes a a diuresis reduces the, in, uh, the intracranial hypertension for a period and then it's you trying to uh, make sure that you reduce it as much as possible and carefully during that period. Just the other thing to mention, if your child's GCS is dropping or your adult's GCS is dropping, make sure you do a blood sugar as well because uh, whilst it might be cerebral mm. edema, hypoglycemia when you've started the insulin infusion is a possibility even if it's rare and it also means you can be confident in continuing your insulin infusion. Oh, and uh, reduce your maintenance. Whatever fluid you've got running at the time, if you think they've got cerebral edema, half them. Half your IV fluid rate. But don't stop the insulin. But don't stop the insulin if you can possibly keep it going.
0: I just wanted to start singing Fleetwood Mac. Don't stop giving you fixed rate insulin. (laughs) Memory aids, Jamie. This is what we're about. Aid memoir. I like
1: it. Could you do it in Ed Miliband's voice? No. No. Go on, go on.
2: (laughs) Definitely not. Oh, I miss Ed. So if your glucose is raised, um, then your body responds. It reduces your plasma sodium. So when your glucose goes up, in order to maintain, to try to maintain osmolality, and I think uh, a neutral electrical balance, Uh, your plasma sodium drops. So um, you need to be aware that you may think your plasma sodium is low, but your total body sodium will not be. It's likely to be high because you're significantly dehydrated. Um, And so there is a little formula you can use uh, to work out um, your degree of uh, low sodium or your corrected sodium for your glucose. And I haven't got a clue what it is, I can't remember.
1: Hello Dr Google Corrected <laughs> sodium formula uh, Don't worry I'll, I'll edit this So it'll make it sound like you said it <laughs> I won't listen It's going to be hilarious <laughs> I've just started following
0: you on Twitter Jamie <laughs> <Just having the laughs> um, Have you just followed me? Yeah.
1: Not the, the, uh, I don't know if was you. Uh, is it the I Know Nazi It's M- My Fault? Is that yeah, you? Me. <laughs> are you? I Know It's My Fault has just started following me. You, are you following me or are you following... I'm following a
0: Nazi M podcast. I, was just looking. I know she's got photos of some of the other people. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm also impressed that uh, that Phil Dykes has managed to get the handle The ED Consultant. As if he is it. You know, he's the ED... <laughs> There's quite a lot around the country. Uh, How's I, Phil Dykes managed to get the I, ED Consultant? I imagine consultant? he got
1: it when he was still an SHO. <laughs> and he's, he's just kept it...
0: Some people do get ideas beyond their station, don't they, and start thinking they're a consultant before they actually are? Yeah, they do. I hate <laughs> people like that.
1: It's really bad. <laughs> they they isn't can't college. stand them. It's really bad. So, uh, there is a formula for the corrected sodium, is it, they're Yes, there is. So, it's the
2: measured sodium you have um, plus 1.6 uh, times the glucose minus 100 divided by 100. But the problem with that formula is it depends
1: on what um, measurement your glucose is in. Mm. there is a, um, an MD calc yeah. other medical calculations are available um, that you, um, you just put in the values and it's either got it in um, standard international or US units and how long is a patient normally in then how long will our young person be in well, with so if it's their first presentation Obviously, it usually takes
2: uh, 24 to 48 hours maybe to start to normalise their pH to a stage that you would then consider allowing them to eat and drink and Mm. use subcut insulin. Mm. Uh, But then comes the educational programme for both the uh, young person and the family. Mm. Uh, So that's when the the, uh, diabetes specialist nurses will get involved and ensure they've got um, a handle on how to give the insulin, the risks, the complications, um, and the fact that in this period in children... Uh, they often do still produce a small amount of insulin, so they honeymoon, and so often require Mm. tiny amounts of insulin Mm. um, for the first um, few months or so, Mm. uh, and then it progressively changes after that. And I think the thing is, if you can get this education right early, Mm. uh, and have good follow-up, which the diabetes specialist nurses provide, then actually uh, the incidence of DKA in someone who's known to have type 1 diabetes is is kept to a
1: minimum. Mm. So I first encountered honeymoon diabetes um, when I uh, had a young chap who came in, um, uni students so of that age group, only just been diagnosed, um, was taking insulin, uh, but coming in with recurrent hypos. I think yes. three within a week, one of which I was, was me. Um, usually involved, I've been out drinking, I've not had much to eat. So that was our kind of going along. Yeah. You, you really don't drink so much. Try telling that to an 18-year-old student. Um, and make sure you keep some, some some something sugary with you if you're feeling the need. And uh, eventually got admitted, because uh, this is the third time in a week you need to come in, and the the endocrinologist said, no, it's, it, it, this is this honeymoon, it's quite common. I'd never heard of it, but yep. it is common, it's, it's well known. And while you've still got that little bit of insulin going on, you don't actually need that much mm-hmm. until yep. all your beta cells have gone, and then yep. you are on the... Yeah. Correct.
2: yeah so I think it's, it's in that period it's important that to recognise that the risk isn't DKA the risk is hypoglycemia mm. and so to allow uh, to err on the
1: side of slightly higher sugars than slightly lower mm-hmm. cool. right then I think that draws our first DKA podcast to a close say goodbye Stephen <laughs> goodbye Jamie <laughs> say goodbye Colin goodbye Colin I <laughs>
0: well, should be goodbye everybody goodbye, li- goodbye listeners <laughs> it's because I think only you're listening
2: Jamie. <laughs> it's
0: probably the main reason I've been heckling so much because <laughs> I forget that this is going to go on the internet
1: it is, it is on iTunes and on Soundcloud uh, I am on Twitter at McDreamy uh, Stephen you're on at at I know it's my fault. Is Please that- don't
0: follow me because I tweet like seven times a year and it's not professional. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I say anything interesting just, or I professional. it's on my
1: phone it just says it's now following you and it's you. That's very sweet. Thank you. alright. Colin?
2: Still not on Twitter. Oh. Good
1: work. Bye bye listeners. We'll uh, see you on the other DK podcast. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was the Take Orally Paediatric DKA podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned, and you can contact us to suggest topics you would like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.